0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Cop Crypto Show. Today's guest, well, this man's been around for a long time in tech and being an entrepreneur and everything around digital things, basically. It's Vinay Gupta, the CEO of Ethereum. Mate, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Good to be here. Excellent look um before we get into what uh, ethereum is and, and the space and blockchain and Bitcoin and, and what the future looks like and all these wonderful things that we're going to talk about do you want to just tell us a little bit about your background and um, what brought you to where you are now um so I mean uh, I got very interested
1: in weird computer stuff in the late 1980s uh, very interested in parallel processing distributed systems um, uh, artificial intelligence, connectionism, all that kind of kind of that weird computer thing. Uh, and then in the 90s, I mostly worked as a graphics engineer, but I was very interested in cryptography. Um, started writing crypto stuff in the uh, 96, 97. Uh, and then in 1999, um, I spent a year uh, working in the Eagle ecosystem. Um, so that was my first exposure to digital cash. And that was amazing. It was like, oh, this is really gonna change the world. Uh, and then after 9-11, my career went in a different direction. I got very into energy policy, natural disaster relief, uh, invented a new class of refugee shelters, and lots of work in that field. Um, but I kept kind of coming back to crypto and taking a look at the algorithms and you know, people kept designing new systems. I was like, you know, this is really gonna go somewhere one day, but I don't know where. Hmm. And then Bitcoin came along. And I'm like, okay, that's really interesting. But what I know from the 90s is cash isn't enough. Right. You know, just a payment rail doesn't build you an economy. It's just payments. You're still dependent on the state for everything else. So I kept looking at it like, eh, it's not quite it. It's not quite it. And then Ethereum came along and it was like, OK, smart contracts. That's my ship. Um, so I joined the Ethereum team and kind of the rest is history. Uh, spent a year at the foundation, spent some time with consensus, And then I took off on my own about two years ago. And here we are.
0: Yeah, wow, quite a uh, quite an interesting road, really, you know, being interested in it from such a long time and then, you know, sort of, I guess, getting the uh, crosshairs on Ethereum. So were you there with um, Vitalik and uh, Joe back in the very early days and the rest of that team? I would have been probably something like employee 30, maybe. Um, you know, there was a large
1: technical team in place when I joined the ship. Um, There weren't that many people that weren't technology. So communications was much weaker than tech was at that point. Uh, So I joined the communications team and then moved from there into kind of project managing. Um, But it was, I mean, that would have been probably a year after they started the project. So we all think of the founders as being like the original gang of eight. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, you know, they were the people that went out there all the way on the limb before the crowd sale. You know, they were the people that did it out of, you know, just pure vision. Uh, You know, they didn't get paid. They just worked themselves into the ground to get that thing moving. And then after that, a lot of other people came in and I was one of those.
0: And and tell me, did did everybody that sort of got involved with with Ethereum, was it all done via, like, you know, like, as you said, sort of, you know, a lot of people worked their asses off to sort of get it up and running. Was everybody in that environment at that time also, you know, basically invested with the token as it built? But was that sort of how it worked? I'm just trying to get an understanding for, you know, a lot of people did a lot of work. I'm hoping they all did very well from it. Well, so, I mean, the original founders, I think, worked
1: for free for about a year to get it up and running. Yep. Uh, and yep. that was you know based on some kind of payment scheme. Once it was up and running, uh, it ran very much like a conventional company. Mm-hmm. right? I mean you got your salary paid in fiat uh, yep. and they had something that looked like a stock options pool which was how you could buy Ether essentially at pre-sale prices if you wanted to. Uh, and a lot of people bought into that and a lot of people did quite nicely from it. Um, I was much more cautious about the regulatory stuff than many other people in the team were. Yep. So I took a kind of different strategy around all of that. But that concern about regulation and how the regulators worked and the legals behind these things is kind of what took me into the space that became material. Like, I would never have thought that hard about the law if I hadn't been trying to figure out exactly what the securities regulation stance was around Ether that was what started me asking the questions of like, so what is it regulators really do anyway? And you know, what, mm. how does the law interface with smart contracts? All that stuff I would never have given real focus to if I hadn't gone through the Ethereum round and had to answer those questions to my own satisfaction in the early days.
0: Yeah. It's like, I mean, when, when people think of crypto, blockchain, that sort of thing, most people will, uh, will think about Bitcoin. They'll then be thinking about, Ethereum—that's typically how it goes. I mean, and most people's, you know, concept is quite straightforward, which is Bitcoin's currency, Ethereum is something else. <laughs> That's really what a lot of people think. I mean, how many different faces has this space got?
1: Well, I mean, so I started watching Bitcoin probably twenty eleven or twenty twelve, and in those days, you know, Bitcoiners were hardcore non-state libertarians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was global, it was outside of the state, it was a revolution, it was a new way of doing things. And you know, there was a real sense that it was separatism, right? We are gonna set up our libertarian microeconomy and it's gonna run on this free market currency, and the rest of you can sort off. And that kind of isolationist, we're gonna do it our way phase of Bitcoin, didn't last that long. There was a year or two when that was the dominant narrative. Then you began to see the people who were like, hey, you know, I work in financial services and I think that we could use this for something, maybe remittances or, you know, so there was a kind of financial wave and then after the financial wave, there were actual bankers and then there were all the folks that figured out that, you know, if Bitcoin went up, they were going to get rich Hmm. and they started pushing super hard for mass public adoption, you get the Bitcoin maximalists, then, you know, you get the kind of shitcoiner phase where it's all you know, 7,000 coins all of which are complaining they're gonna be the new Bitcoin. (laughs) Um, And then there's kind of long pause and then you start getting real technical innovation. And that's Ethereum and it's EOS and it's all of these accelerated, you know, fast platforms, scalable blockchains. Uh, It's all the new smart contract platforms. You you begin to see a real sort of breakout. Um, But to me, it looks like the basic ideology of the field changes like every six months or a year you're suddenly confronting a whole bunch of new people that have a completely different idea about what it all means.
0: It's continually uh, that, changing, isn't it?
1: Really, it's continually changing because it's continually growing, mm. and the, the mood changes really radically. Like, you know, there was a probably a more or less a solid year where the ether price continued to go up. Yep. And while the ether price continued to go up, nearly everybody in the Ethereum community had made money on ether. So there was a sort of universal benevolence that went around in the Ethereum community. All these folks were just like, oh yeah, we're, you know, we're all in it together, you know, we've, we've faced the hardship and here we are, da, 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 da. And because the general vibe was that, that anybody in the Ethereum space was making money from Ethereum. Now, having seen such a sharp drop in the price, um, most of the people in the Ethereum space have lost money on Ethereum. Mm. Right? I mean, you know, if if the thing has dropped in value by 30% or 60% or 90%, most of the people involved will have bought high and sold low or bought high and are now holding. And that situation completely changes how the space operates. Because instead of the average person getting rich, the average person has put a bunch of money into it and hasn't gone anywhere. And so there's this very tone. Um, relative to when it was a slow growth upwards. You know, it's like the the people that are trading this stuff now are just like, okay, you can lose money doing this and we have done. And that I think is a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because the realism that comes with people seeing losses and taking losses is also what prevents future rounds of hysteria and focuses people's mind on actually building stuff. But at the same time, there's a loss of emotional energy Because when a lot of the people that are involved in something have lost money doing it, it begins to look less like an investment, more like a bad hobby. Um, And that's the razor edge that we slide down on all of these technologies because people are very obsessed with price for very obvious reasons, often to the detriment of technical development
0: absolutely i mean i think we saw a lot of that last year in 2018 we you know we saw the hysteria through uh, october november december with the icos and even somewhat in january and even sometime in february as well now a lot of money was raised i mean billions was raised uh from crowdsourcing effectively and you know then all of a sudden it came to you know we're going to do this we're going to do that we're going to change the world blah 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 um and the first thing is well if you haven't got a runway i.e if you haven't got capital your runway shortens and the Wonderful ideas you had disappear. What what really fascinated me is that how many businesses, or how many cryptos, um, held onto their Ethereum the whole way through it. It, it just sort of beggars belief. I know, I know a number of projects did not, and they've you know they've got large cash reserves. So during this bear market, those are the companies that are sitting back, going, "Well, we're building. We've got we got work to do, man. Like we're not we're not we're not worried about the market going up or down because our product needs to be built." And we got out, we, we hedged ourselves against the US dollar or whatever it may be, and, um, yeah. and, and we looked after our money. That's what I think is interesting is the next round. Who's gonna stick around? Who is in building mode now? Because whilst markets aren't going through their crazy cycles, it does give projects the ability to slow down, not pander to investors as much, and really focus on what they're trying to achieve.
1: I mean, the, the crux of this, you know, fundamentally is the treasury management is hard. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if the price had gone the other way, then everybody that sold out fear would be sitting there cursing themselves because they threw away three, you know, three quarters of the money they'd raised. If it goes the other way, then a different set of people would get caught out. Um, you know, everything that involves this kind of exchange rate volatility is a zero sum game.
0: You know, there's yeah, no way around. I, 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 I hear what you're saying there, but. I mean, there's, there's got to be some other metrics you put around that. I mean, look, if if let's say I've raised $10 million of Ethereum, okay? Mm. Now, at the price of, let's say, 1400 or $1,300 up around those highs or, or $800, or what, the price doesn't really matter. Whatever price I've raised at, it's not that difficult to look at that and go, okay, well... Do we have enough money and how long is it going to take us to get to revenue? Because, you know, whether you raised a hundred million or 10 million or whatnot, eventually that money is going to run out unless you actually have a way to raise money, to have revenue. Business relies on it; It's the oxygen of business. So if you're looking at that and you go, well, we've probably got, you know, five million if that's going to buy us, let's say three years okay, let's mm. just say three years, then wouldn't it be wise to lock in the security of your company for the next three years, which is your runway, your, sorry, your um, your roadmap to actual revenue? That would seem like a pretty simple decision to make. Now, that's only if you're someone who can take greed and fear out of the equation. That way, you've still got $5 million in Ethereum if you wish, but you've also made sure that the runway you've got is sufficient enough for you to get the profitability. I just don't understand why that wasn't done in more cases. Oh, young people who had never seen a bear market,
1: (laughs) right? They entered the space. You know, they were surrounded by people that had made a thousand to one on Bitcoin, and then they'd made another thousand to one in the Ethereum presale. Yep. And you know, all you heard was the numbers always go up, and everything is great, and crypto is a boom, and it's going to be this way forever, and this time it's different. Mm -hmm. And you know, all of that stuff. There was so much bad trading going on. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what's going to happen by the time the SEC finally sorts all this stuff out. But you know, there was so much genuinely dodgy stuff going on.
0: So, mate, um, obviously, we talked about the young people and the older people in the space through the trading cycle of 2017. Obviously, a lot of the a lot of the younger people sort of didn't see that there was a bit of mania going on. though a bit of bit sort of, I won't say the word sucked in, but um for people that had been in markets, because a lot of older people also got trapped out in that very aggressive bull run as well because they just didn't know when to exit. So we've seen the market go shooting up, we've seen it come back down, and now we're back into that building stage. And I think it's a really positive thing for projects at the moment to be focusing on their vision and what it is they're trying to achieve. And while that's going on, of course they're molding our future. So what do you know about what you've seen thus far as to what the future might look like with this insane technology coming into the fore now and actually being built and giving runways?
1: Well, so, I mean, I guess there's two ways of thinking about this, right? Um, The way that I normally think about the future is you go forward about 20 years, maybe at this point it's only 10 or 15, and you say, okay, what's inevitable, right? Uh, I don't think there's any reasonable doubt that 20 years from now, any manufactured object of any value at all will have some kind of unique digital identifier inside of it, and you'll use that for buying it, for selling it, for warrantying it. You might use it for lending it to somebody. Like, we're obviously going to bind the digital to our physical staff. And the question then is, okay, if that's where we're gonna be in 20 years, then it's a question of what's the path like, how do we get there from here? So that's one branch of the way to think about the future. And the other way is to look at what's currently happening because that stuff's already real, right? It's inevitably here, and then extrapolate forward from there. And here I think, you know, the companies that did large ICOs and that are on the more solid legal end of that space will probably not wind up getting crushed like bugs like the SEC. And I don't know where that line will be, but many will get crushed, many won't. Of the ones that don't, these things are now you know, kind of the best funded long-term research institutions in the world. Mm. They're basically like a network of Xerox parks because we no longer have academic tenure. The dot-com game has been, uh, has been optimized to the point where we're no longer doing really basic research. You know, there isn't that thing of just, you know, funding entities to do multi-year research projects. There's almost nothing other than the ICO space that does that anymore. So I'm quite enthusiastic about, you know, the prospects for Firstly, a bunch of amazing technologies coming out of the better end of the ICO market. And here I'm thinking of things like Status, for example, who I think are probably the best of that example. Uh, and then on the other hand, you know, the ongoing digitization of matter is such a fundamental trend, blockchain or not, that's going to get done. And blockchain to me looks like the next logical candidate technology to try that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. and it, it, It's really, there's a lot of areas where that, um, you know, as you were saying that the digitization of all manufactured products, so to speak, um, you start to actually think of how big that actually is. The mind really, truly does boggle. If you consider the fact that, you know, every single device that has any value at all, I mean, even something like uh, a perishable, um, right now, there's a lot of talk uh, in, in certain circles about, um, you know, the the sending of, you uh, beef, let's say, Australian beef that wants to go to Japan and it stops through Indonesia on the way. Well, if the air conditioning or the refrigeration system shuts down, well, the people at one end on the Australian end are saying, well, we didn't do anything wrong. We packed it right. And the people on the other end are saying, well, it wasn't our fault because it, it went bad. Well, the shipping company in the middle, they're the ones that have obviously got to try and work out what happened. And it's very difficult to do that because they just you know, it gets to one port to the next and they just refreeze it. So all this yeah, I- sort of stuff requires these chips, uh, these sorts of information carrying and, um, you know, uh, devices that can send information back almost real time. It doesn't have to be exactly real time. So that's just one way of thinking. I mean, everything can be chipped. Everything can give more information. Now, with that comes the whole big brother type thought. A lot of people thinking, well, gosh, they've got so much information already. How much more do we want to give them? And look, I, I understand that. But when it comes to something that can help save people in the sense of you know like the example i just gave it would save people from getting sick uh, it can offer hopefully more jobs because the margins are better so therefore they can scale faster so it employs more so it gets more employment and it can really help to track and monitor certain things in different parts of the world that allows us to be more connected and get ahead of disasters before they actually happen like, i really can't see it too many negatives when you look at how much the positives outweigh that what are your thoughts on that mate
1: um, so here, you know, this basically comes down to cryptography. Mm. Um, having these very large-scale information systems doesn't mean that everybody has to live in everybody else's pocket. Yes. You know, like you've got entire new families of approaches for doing this kind of cryptography now. Um, probably the poster child is the ZK-SNARKs, which are very computationally intensive, but incredibly powerful. There is homomorphic encryption. Uh, there are other you know, approaches like Aztec. You know, there are tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of, you know, fantastically competent schemes for encrypting data, which you intend to be accessed later on by specific individuals rather than the general public. Yep. And then, you know, this goes back to things like Shamir secret sharing. You know, it, it's not like we're short of tools for doing this. Mm. So I don't see any reason why we shouldn't think about these kind of large scale digitization projects as going hand in hand with the cryptography. You know, you figure out who's meant to see what inside of some kind of trust architecture, like a nation state court system with things like subpoenas. And you take that system and then you apply it directly to all of these problems you've got of transparency in terms of who's going to see what.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. So with um, Ethereum, Okay, I want to talk to you a little bit about that again now. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Smart Property Register, what, what that actually means and, and what you're doing with that?
1: So, and this is a pretty long-standing project, right? Mm. If you want to be able to buy and sell physical goods using the blockchain, you need some way of getting the identity of the physical goods on chain, and you need some way of getting enough legal authority over the physical goods so that when you sell them, they stay sold. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and So that's a two-part question. The first part of it's kind of like an identity register. And in this, what we're doing here looks basically kind of like sovereign or Uport, any of these self-sovereign identity systems. But now we're doing it for physical objects. So you have a digital identity, but now it's for a Stradivarius violin or a car or a house or, you know, 100 tons of aluminium or whatever it happens to be. You need some kind of digital identity for that thing, And in the case of a human being, you know, self-sovereign identity is you own the keys. An object can't own its own keys. It doesn't have any intelligence to make decisions. So you need something to represent the object and act as a proxy to hold the keys on its behalf. And all of that architecture we talk about is being asset passports. So asset passports are how we identify the stuff. Um, Then the second part of that is the smart property register. And the smart property register is what happens when you take one of these asset passports that identifies the stuff, and then you bind it legally to smart contracts so that when you update the smart contract, you do things like change the ownership of the asset. So the legal title changes as soon as you update the blockchain. Uh, And that stuff is the real payload of Materium, right? We want to create a world in which most of these assets which are being manufactured are manufactured bound to a smart contract right in the factory, and then they come out into the world with an API bound directly to the object so that every time that object is transferred, um, it's being uh, tracked on chain. And what that gives us is solid provenance for the object, but it also lets us do things like get rid of counterfeit goods. It lets us know when something is stolen property. It really just ratchets down all of the questions that we've got about what's happening in the supply chain.
0: Makes perfect sense, but I mean, there's so many, so many industries that could use that. Okay. So there's pretty much everything. Everyone who's got a product that is, you know, not just living on the internet effectively could use technology like that, depending on you know the value of that product. Now with the market being your entire world and every product in it, how are you narrowing down as to who you're probably going to be able to target for your best bang for buck early to get the most benefit straight up? So we did a lot of analysis on this. Um,
1: and we came to the conclusion that we were going to start with Stradivarius violence. Which, you think, why on earth would you start there? So the first reason is they're incredibly expensive, which is really helpful because some of these processes are being done for the first time. There's a certain amount of just doing things manually and checking it five times. And you know our, our costs of actually doing this stuff will be much lower later on. But right now there's a lot of really hard analysis you have to do before you do these things. So that's the first part of this, they're expensive. The second thing is that they have extremely good identifiability. So the gold standard for testing whether a violin is what it says it is, is that you take a CAT scan Mm. and then you compare it to a CAT scan of the violin that was taken at a previous point. And all the fine wood grain is impossible to forge. There's no known technology which can turn one piece of wood into another piece of wood, all the microstructure left by the biological processes is more unique than a fingerprint. So they're expensive, they're incredibly uh, certain uh, in terms of identification. The third thing is that they almost never lived with their own. Stradivarius would be kept either a vault, or more often they went to young musicians who take them around the world and play them. if the instrument is being you know regularly played by a musician, it's also tied to a set of insurance contracts. So you know they're not we don't have a new physical custody problem. The Stradivarius owners already have physical custody arrangements they're very comfortable with, they've got insurers they're comfortable with, they've got identification they're comfortable with, and then we come into that and just take that existing working ecosystem and put it on chain. Um, and that is you know it's a, it's a great place to start. It's also very charismatic like I mean I've seen these instruments played and it's like standing inside of you know you, you start with a, a sort of a little office and then as soon as the thing is played it's like you're standing in a medieval castle it's a like, wow okay this instrument is you know 350 years old wow! and immediately you're transported to the past like you know it's, it's like a, it's like a sort of mobile heritage site <laughs> um, you know it's, because you know normally if you're going to go to a castle you have to travel to the castle the violin will come to you mm. and so that, that's why we're starting in violins. Right after that, um, we're going straight into trade finance stuff. In fact, the trade finance stuff has already started to pile in. We're a bit shorthanded right now because the violin thing is ongoing, and the trade finance stuff, we'd assumed we'd have to show them running violins before they would talk to us. Yep. No, 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 no. The trade finance people were actually beginning to bang on the door. We're just like, whoa, okay, we weren't quite ready for that. This is amazing. So we're rapidly having a tool up for the trade finance side. And for those guys, it's just expensive things that are going through the supply chain.
0: Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, That's amazing. And if you how, think how of this. How far along was... the stratospheric thing? I mean, have, have you got some going on? I mean, are you sending them around the world? Are you chipping them? Or um,
1: I So, you know, we're, we're telling people Q2. Yep. Uh, I am highly optimistic that will turn out to mean me. Um, you know, I mean, you know, eyes to be dotted, you know, t's to be crossed, and all the rest of
0: that. Certainly, Q2 may cross your fingers. Yeah, okay. It's a, uh, it's quite a um lofty place to start. I mean, it's uh, getting to the people that uh, are willing to give permission to go even anywhere near one of those things <laughs> is uh, is quite amazing. And your 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 explanation of it, uh, as in, you know, when you hear it being played in a small room, it's like listening to something in a castle that really gave me a lot of visuals that I quite enjoyed. So thank you for that. <laughs> They're remarkable. They're remarkable. It sounds like there is a huge amount going on there at the moment, mate. And Q2 sounds like, um, you know, provided you stick to uh, the timeline that you're hoping to do so, which you just said you're very optimistic about, there'll be a lot more going on. Uh, what, what's the next step? So let's, let's get this violin sorted out. Let's get this working okay let's progress the conversations uh with the finance side of things you're going to need to scale at a rapid rate because as soon as those sorts of high value items or not just the high value item but it starts at high value and it can move down that uh you know that scale but as soon as you get some big contracts in there and you've proven that it works i mean you'd be strapping yourself in wouldn't you how are you going to manage to keep up with that
1: uh that's a great question um, so there's, I mean, the, the core question here is, can we raise money fast enough yeah. to scale so that we're not leaving deals sitting on the table? Yep. Um, so, I mean, we're now, what, six months into crypto winter? And, you know, we've raised enough to keep the wheels turning and the lights on in the middle of crypto winter, because we had been planning a fundraising round that would start that was starting like right at the early part of that process. Yep. So we were kind of like, okay, that's when we're gonna start the raise, and Crypto Winter kicked off like right before our, our kind of go date. So we had the worst possible timing for starting the raise. And even under those conditions, we are doing all right. I mean, you know, one always would like to be doing better, but we're doing all right. Yep. Um later rounds, you know, the back of the envelope is you want to do a materium operation, like a subsidiary in about nine countries, which will give you access to a very substantial chunk of the world's trade. Those are probably three to five person operations, largely dealing with regulatory. Plus you need a technical team. You know, you begin to see this as quite a substantial company with the sort of, you know, medium-sized dot-com style burn rate. Mm -hmm. So we are going to be very dependent on, you know, good access to medium-to-large ticket VCs, and we're gonna be, you know, sticking this until we get absolute regulatory certainty about how we do, you know, some kind of crowd sale. Now, I don't know that we're ever gonna make it as far as a crowd sale, um, but we will certainly use token economics for large parts of the system as we build it out. Um. And, you know, you can see how careful I'm having to hedge what I say here because all of this stuff is extremely legally delicate. We have to wait on what the regulators, you know, give us a go-ahead to do and we have to time it in such a way that we don't have any, you know, uh, we're not making any bets on future regulatory frameworks, right? So we need to be able to make it work inside of the standard VC ecosystem if we have to. If we get a better option than that from the regulators, we will enthusiastically embrace it. Which I think is all I can say about that.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Always got to be careful, mate. There's uh there's no doubt about that. So look, um, I guess the last thing to do is to just say thank you so much for your time today. It's um it's been it's been a fascinating conversation going through um the way you see the world with blockchain included, technology overlaying obviously being the well, not overlaying, blockchain probably overlaying the technology that has already been built and the way the math Ethereum has been uh, focused on, on what their task is, which is truly a global business. I mean, the, the potential for what you guys are doing is just absolutely insane. And I wish you all the best of luck. You, you will have some issues, hopefully, with scaling. As, as far as, you know, it's good to have an issue when you've got so much business you can't keep up. I wish you all the best going forward. Look forward to keeping an eye on what's going on. And if you could just tell us where everybody can find out more about the project and yourself, that'd be great. Cool. Um, so uh, the Materium website, um,
1: mattereu dot materium.com, uh, the best thing to read there is the light paper. So the light paper is about I don't know, nine pages or something like that. It's not very long, but it gives you a really clear breakdown of all the components of the system and how they fit together and what we're supposed to do. Uh, and me personally, uh, I'm on Twitter as Leashless.
0: No worries at all. I've just worked out. I've been saying it wrong the whole time. It's Materium, not Materium. Well, there you go. A little bit of egg on my face to end the interview. Thank you so much once again. Vin Gupta, CEO of Materium. Thanks very much for your time. And everybody, have a fantastic day. Bye for now.